my recent special message video, I looked at three things all prospective followers of Doug Wilson ought to at least be aware of. His doctrine of God, his view of justification, and his general equity theonomy. In this video, I want to look at what he often terms the objectivity of the covenant. First off, a key assumption made by Wilson is told in these words, quote, Non-elect covenant members who look to themselves for their salvation receive great condemnation. Reformed is not enough, chapter 15. But as a Baptist, I would hold that there is simply no such thing as non-elect covenant members. Because Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God chose his people in the covenant, that is, in Christ himself, who is our covenant. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8 says, I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people. Second off, Wilson makes another assumption that Christ's covenant can be broken. He says, quote, they receive this condemnation because they are covenant breakers, but breaking covenant occurs because of unbelief, the lack of faith, and not because of lack of good works. Reformed is not enough, again, chapter 15. But then later on he says, quote, this does not mean that God is surprised by our actions, by no means. It means that this is how we see things played out in the providential fulfilling of the decrees of God. The means by which men apostatize from the covenant is unfaithfulness. The means by which men persevere in the covenant is faithfulness. In other words, to assert that men fall away because their salvation was contingent upon continued faithfulness in the gospel is not to deny the sovereignty of God at all. Reformed is not enough, chapter 15. Notice how he switches from covenant breakers lacking faith to covenant breakers lacking faithfulness. So what exactly is the condition for covenant inclusion and perseverance? Faith or faithfulness? If faith is a habit of the mind while faithfulness is an effect of that habit or an act following therefrom, then Wilson here implies a confusion of faith and works. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul opposes those two things in terms of how one is made a covenant partaker. Galatians 2.16 says, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Ironically, even Thomas Aquinas, a Roman Catholic, distinguishes faith as a habit of the mind from its effects to which the habit moves us. He says, quote, Faith is a habit of the mind whereby eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect ascend to what is non-apparent, end quote. Thomas also holds that this faith is given by God, quote, The Pelagians held that this cause was nothing else than man's free will. And consequently, they said that the beginning of faith is from ourselves, inasmuch as, to wit, 
it is in our power to be ready to ascend to things which are of faith. But that the consummation of faith is from God who proposes to us the things we have to believe. But this is false. For since man, by ascending to matters of faith, is raised above his nature, this must needs accrue to him from some supernatural principle moving him inwardly, and this is God. Therefore, faith as regards the ascent, which is the chief act of faith, is from God moving man inwardly by grace. End quote. And this he distinguishes from the effects of faith, which are fear and heart purification. Thomas says, quote, Hence the first beginning of the heart's purifying is faith, and if this be perfected through being quickened by charity, the heart will be perfectly purified thereby. End quote. Implicit within that statement is a distinction between faith and works, and surprisingly for Thomas, perhaps, between justification and sanctification, the former being the fountainhead of the latter, not vice versa. John Calvin closely aligns with this, even when he says, quote, As soon as the minutest particle of faith is instilled into our minds, we begin to behold the face of God, placid, serene, and propitious, far off indeed, but still so distinctly as to assure us that there is no delusion in it. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 3, Chapter 2. If we use the current operative terminology in place of Thomas's, we would come up with something perhaps like faith and faithfulness. Faith as the intellectual theological habit existing in the mind, and faithfulness as the obediential means by which the act of faith is improved through love. We are justified according to the former, and the latter follows therefrom. And that's an important distinction, because if those two things are confused, it would follow that we are justified by our acts of obedience, which flows from faith. In other words, we would be justified and covenant partakers by our faithfulness rather than Christ's obedience. So faith and faithfulness, what God causes in us versus the acts of obedience it produces are distinguished as faith is distinguished from its fruits. The instrument of justification is the former, not the latter. Unfortunately, Wilson apparently identifies faith and faithfulness, and this confuses the act of faith with charity or love, thereby making our justification depend upon what we do rather than upon who we believe, the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking to the supposed conditionality of the new covenant, Wilson continues, Quote, we like to pretend that the New Testament is filled with automatic covenant blessings, but the only way to maintain this illusion is to come up with an invisible covenant that no one can point to in such a way as to prove us wrong. We like to pretend that this is a point of distinction between the Old and the New Covenants, whereas, in fact, it is one of the places where the New Testament draws parallels with solemn warning. In this respect, the New Testament church was no different than the church of the Jews in the wilderness. Jews in the wilderness apostatized. Christians in the first century apostatized. Again, that's reformed is not enough. Chapter 15. A few things. First, the covenant is as visible as Christ is. We look to Christ, not the covenant community, not our own faithfulness, but to the Lord of glory who accomplishes a perfect faithfulness in our place. Second, 
Christians did not apostatize in the first century, and the Apostle John makes this very clear when he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. The grammar is important. When the Apostle says, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, the term for had been is in the imperfect tense, signifying they had never been truly among the ranks of the saints in the first place. Furthermore, in verse 18, John calls these apostatizers antichrists, not Christians. A very important distinction, and a distinction with a big difference. Thirdly, the term apostasy in Scripture signifies rebellion or abandonment. So the question becomes, abandonment of what? When Scripture uses the term, the faith, it's typically referring to the doctrine of Christ to which the unregenerate may trivially ascend through the intellect, yet not trust in for their own account. In other words, they do not appropriate the work of Christ to themselves. They believe it abstractly, historically. And that's why when an unbeliever intellectually ascends to the faith, which is just Christian dogma, but they do not trust in it unto their salvation, they are said to have a non-saving historical faith. And through the rejection of that historical faith, which will eventually come, the unbeliever manifests what they always objectively were. That is, not a covenant member, not a Christian, and not a member of Christ's body and so on. God bless.